this the notes the notes for John are available through the website. Um, <clears throat> if you want to go back and and see them all, uh, so as you can see, I've got them up here in my notebook. But if you want to catch up with, with where we are? They are available on the website. I think it's on the resources tab. <clears throat> All right, one more time. Let's go to the Lord. Father, I, I stand up here aware, very aware of the fact that um, on my own merits, I don't deserve to even open the Word of God, let alone lead us in the study of it. Um, but I'm always mindful of what mindful of what Paul says that who is adequate for these things and we are nothing more than just uh, common ordinary jars of clay or plastic bags that, that hold a priceless treasure that the value uh, is not in the container it's in it's in the treasure of your word and so we thank you for your word this morning I pray you would open our hearts to receive it our minds to understand it and uh, in my mouth to speak it, Lord, not just opinion, um, but it's your word. And, uh, we're looking at a, at a, at a very uh, challenging subject, a call to the cross, uh, a call to the way of the cross this morning. And so I pray that you would help us to have hearts that are willing and ready to do that. We like the, the blessings aspect of the gospel, and we're on board with the comfort, but we, we don't like the idea of of taking up our cross sometimes, and I have to put myself there as well. Um, it's challenging, Lord, but we thank you that you promised to be with us uh, right to the very end of the age, and uh, and you sent your Holy Spirit. You've given us given us the same enabling to do uh, your will as as you had. So we thank you for this truth this morning. Help us to. Uh, again, to receive your word and for your blessing on the service and the Bible study uh, later on this afternoon as well, too. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12 is um, the last chapter, and if you're dividing the book up into an outline, uh, there's a number of ways to do it, and, and you can get all kinds of commentaries and people divide it different ways, but First, I like to be kind of simple. As I get older, I'm, I appreciate simplicity more. <laughs> yeah. Life is complicated enough as it is, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of like Romans, remember when we studied Romans, we studied right before John. And Romans, you can kind of divide into two main sections, right? There's the doctrinal half of Romans, which is the first 11 chapters. And then chapters 12 through 16 are the application. Paul says, okay, in view of this, great gospel that it was talked about how do we live live it out right well john is kind of like that in the sense that that you can divide it into two sort of main sections okay in the first section um the first 11 chapters uh conveniently or first tw i'm sorry first 12 chapters um are the public basically the public ministry of, of the lord thank you Jack. Yeah, and, uh, raise your hand if you want the, the notes there. And uh, so, so we got, yeah, got two of them. the public ministry of the Lord in the first 12, and then the private ministry of the Lord in the, uh, the uh, 13 through 21. Okay, so roughly speaking, that's, that's the Gospel of John. As I've been comparing this to other <clears throat> other gospels, they rough they follow kind of the same outline. And what I was telling telling you uh, a few weeks ago, and this is what we're saying on the first, really the first page of the notes in front of you, is that um, a lot of the, in fact, all four gospels kind of follow this same basic pattern where you have a lot of. Um, Sort of almost fast forwarding through the first couple of years of Jesus' ministry, they hit some things here and there, 
you know, like a, an illustration I've been using is when you, when you, if you've ever gotten a stone, you skip it across the water. You know, I used to love to do that as a kid, stand out of the lake, and I was proud of my abilities to do that. And anyway, so, you know, the first couple of, of skips are pretty long, right? But as you get near the end of it, it's slowing down and it's getting more and more rapid. It's all, the Gospels all follow that same pattern. So that as you get closer to the cross, um, it, they're kind of slowing down and they're giving there's a lot of material in all the Gospels that happen in the, almost like the last half or maybe a third of the Gospel. That's just, you know, week and a half, maybe two weeks tops of, of his ministry and including the cross and the resurrection and, and what happens directly after that, okay? So if you're not really aware of that, you, you kind of, you know, it catches you a little off guard because there's this, there's a very marked change in the message that Jesus is bringing. And in the early parts of the gospel, it's very hopeful, right? And there's this, this call to repentance and, you know, just John the Baptist, of course, he's, 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 you know, all fire and brimstone, right? And he's calling for judgment and so forth. But Jesus comes on and repent of the kingdom of heaven's at hand, and he's healing people. And he's going through as many villages as he can. He sends out his disciples, and they're spreading that same message. But as you're getting closer and closer to the cross, there's this change, and there's this, this almost darker mood that comes in where, where <clears throat> particularly uh, for the leaders of the nation, Jesus is very pointed. Right? Very, very pointed. Remember, we saw that, we actually kind of saw that change in John's gospel, uh, uh, beginning with, with um, chapter 8. Chapter 8 happens, um, chapters 7 through 10, happen um, at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the fall of the year before where we are now. So Jesus was crucified in Passover, so that's around April March, April on our calendar, right? So about six months earlier in September, October is when uh, Tabernacles is going to happen, right? So chapter 8 happens about six months before the cross, and he, in chapter 8, unloads on them and says, uh, it's in there where that he says, you are sons of, you're not sons of Abraham like you think, you're not sons of God, you're sons of he really lays it on. And, and of course, <coughs> Matthew 23, too, is another one that really stands out that way. All those woes, woe to you, scribe, very woe, 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 right? You've read that. <clears throat> okay, so there's this marked change, and that's certainly true in John. And that's that's what we're basically saying on the front end of this here, is that um, as I was trying to, to understand these, the sort of the last half of this chapter, it kind of was a little, it felt a little disconnected. There wasn't really, you know, there's words, I like things in a nice, neat, orderly, linear kind of way, right? And, and it didn't kind of fit into that until I started to compare it with the other Gospels. <clears throat> and, the, and that's what I'm saying here on the, on the notes, is that right, at, so all four Gospels, in terms of our chronology, um, give us the triumphal entry. They talk about the triumphal entry. <clears throat> But uh, John is particular, particularly concerned in his emphasis there in letting us know that the excitement of, of the crowd was, there was already an excitement, there was already a buzz in Jerusalem, but people were really, really the, stoked by the testimony of the people, the witnesses, the reputable witnesses that saw Lazarus raised from the dead, right? John really puts an emphasis on that. And that's great because the other Gospels don't really tell us that. It seems like there's all this excitement in Jerusalem, and then a few days later, he's crucified, right? What, what, what's the disconnect? And so I think John is helping us understand that just a little bit more, that not everybody was on board with crucifying him, okay? However, as Jesus crests the top of the hill, the Mount of Olives, as he, he sees Jerusalem, and he begins to weep, right? In, in the midst of all the joyous celebration, uh, he's he's crying uh, for them because the time of their they miss the time of their visitation, and he knows what's coming in 78 years, right? Um, so anyway, that's the setting. That's the gospels all talk about that. But then the other gospels go, and that's again latter half of your notes there. Um, you can see 
from the other gospels, just, you know, all of these things that happen. He goes to the temple for a number of days in a row, evidently, and is healing and teaching the people. He cleanses, he starts with that whole thing by cleansing the temple, right? So he rides in Jerusalem. Remember, um, pretty, I'm pretty sure. I'm convinced that it's on the 10th of Nisan when, when the, uh, the, the head of the household would, would choose the lamb for the Passover, right? And so here's the father showing his choice of the lamb to take away the sins of the world, coming into Jerusalem. The people are welcoming him as the family would be excited to welcome their little lamb in, right? And he goes to the house, father's house, which is the temple. And he goes there, and he's there, you might say, with the family of Israel for three or four days. He cleanses the temple and, uh, and, and, and uh, um, does all of that. And you can see that there. Well, what, what John does is he's not repeating all of that that's in the other three Gospels. What he's doing is he's summarizing <clears throat> for us in the text that we're in, um, verses 20 through 36. He's summarizing the sort of last message that Jesus really had to say there. And he's also giving us um, a, a, a detail <clears throat> that the other Gospels don't, and that is that the Heavenly Father spoke for the third time audibly in Jesus' ministry during that period of time. During that time when, when the Lamb of God is in the house of God, so to speak, as the Passover Lamb, waiting for the 14th in the Psalm when he's going to be crucified. Okay? And, and, uh, and in the midst of that, the Father puts his final audible stamp, if you will, of approval on Jesus. Okay, And that's, that's on the back side of your notes there, second page, um, where the Father speaks audibly. Okay, And so we just did a little survey of the three places in the Gospels where God the Father speaks audibly. We, we are familiar with the baptism. We're familiar with the Mount of Transformation. Uh, transfiguration, but John gives us the last one, which is here in our text. Okay. All right. Um, any questions, comments, or up to this point? I know it was sort of a whirlwind. I'm just trying to, you know, it's been several weeks, right? So trying to trying to get us back in a in a uh, context of where we are. After all, context is king, right? Context is super important. Would you mind getting me a little thing of water right there? Thank you. Thank you, Dad. Yeah. Make jokes about him being water boy, but whatever. <laughs> 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 All right. All right. So this morning we're going to get into our text, okay, itself, and, and start breaking down. Um, you know, as we say, we're we're walking through John, we're driving through, right? So we. You take our time and, and notice more detail when you when you walk through something. But, um, so let's let's do that. Um, let's start. We we'll start with verses. Thank you. As first point, our outline is uh, Gentile proselytes seek Jesus. I think we've touched on this briefly last time, so we won't spend a lot of time here, uh, other than just to mention a few things uh, because we want to get really to point two, which is kind of really where we are. All right. So. Um, Verses 20 through 22 say this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Okay. And we asked the question last time, you know, well, first of all, who are these people, these Greeks? Um, and, and, I, and I introduced uh, some of you, it was, it was, you probably heard the word before and others hadn't, but the, the word proselyte, right? Remember what a proselyte is? Stealing church. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's stealing. <clears throat> Actually, um, <laughs> I know what you mean by that, but uh, Jesus was a sheep stealer. <laughs> yeah, he really was. I mean, we saw that when we studied chapter ten. You know that I'm the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who leads his sheep out of the the sheepfold of the false system of Israel, right? So, if we do steal sheep, hopefully they're coming from false churches. That's right. 
Uh, so what's a proselyte? It's a convert. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, someone, usually uh, a Gentile, who has been converted to Judaism, and they're hanging on. Um, I, I would assume that in there is an experience, a true experience with God. It's not that it's not just someone who is um, curious or an inquirer, but someone who has made it a part of their faith. Right. That's right. It, it's basically a convert, right? And I mean, generally speaking, we don't use the term a lot, but it could be used today. Um, but in this in this context, we'd say convert today. Okay. But uh, in this context, you're right um, that these are these are Greeks. Um, these, in other words, these are Gentile-born people. It doesn't say they're they're men. It could be a mixed company. We don't know. Okay. But these are Gentile-born people um, who have been brought into the, uh, the, the, the religion, the system of Judaism, so to speak. They're, they're convinced that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. Kind of interesting. Well, well, this is the only example of that anywhere, right? No. No. <laughs> no. Remember we had a centurion, the other Gospels talk about a centurion who had Jesus... The God-fearing man. We have Cornelius and Acts. You have the we have the uh, eunuch uh, who I just heard a message about that um, this past week, uh, where Philip is told to go up into the chariot. Right, the eunuch of, from Ethiopia. Okay, he's not necessarily Jewish by birth, but he's he's seeking the and God's working in his heart. You know, what about that? We just got through with Christmas. Uh, what about the uh, the wise men? Right. The, the Magi that come. Um, there's some, Dad sent me some links and there's a really good two part series from John MacArthur out on YouTube and, and Grace to You as well, if you want to see the audio track, um, that talk about it's, it's a very comprehensive look at the whole history of those guys, where they came from, and everything. That's really quite, quite amazing. But the thing that is so cool to me is that God is not limited like we. Think he is. <laughs> no, he's not. Okay. In fact, I have noticed uh, in the scriptures and in my own life that that God seems to love to just break out of whatever box I put him in, and I may not necessarily even be conscious of that fact, right? But he'll do things and use people and and accomplish things that you are just like, man, ever in a million years, right? And so. Uh, however, these these folks had come in contact with the Old Testament scriptures or how they had heard of Jesus, we're not told. But it does say, and we can't say this, that they are proselytized. How do you know that? Uh, well, it says in the rest of that verse, um, at the start of that verse, that they went up to worship at the feast. Okay? So remember, the Passover, which is the feast that's being referred to here, was one of three required feasts. So anybody who was who was a worshiper of the one true God and was following the law would would keep those feasts. And you had to come and present yourself before the Lord. And the place to do that was in Jerusalem at the temple. And that's why you know all the way even back into chapter eleven is talking about. John is giving us the idea of all these Jews that are coming right, and as they're coming and they're standing in the temple and. Oh, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Rome. Or I'm from Corinth. Hey, nice to meet you. You know, and they're talking as they're in the temple, and, and, and topic of conversation is Jesus, right? You think he's going to come up to the feast, right? Well, what John is doing is he's he's letting us know that more and more and more people are streaming into Jerusalem, and based on estimates from uh, from extra biblical history at the time, uh, scholars think it could be as many as. 1.5 to even 2, a little over 2 million people that would, would throng into the, into the 
Jerusalem area, <clears throat> Jerusalem surrounding area uh, during this time. <clears throat> well, that would include some of these kinds of people who had gone through the conversion process and the Jews had a very elaborate process. Remember I mentioned last time, part of that was baptism, okay? Uh, and, and the immersion baptism that John the, the Baptist practiced, uh, which he, he took that and, and turned it around on the Jews and said, not, it's not just these Gentiles that need it, you Jews need it too, right? And there's some symbology there in terms of being born again. You know, so that for the for a Greek proselyte to be baptized was a symbolic way of saying I die to my Gentile heritage and I'm, I'm born again as a Jew. Okay, and and so. Uh, but it also meant that Jews had to were displaying repentance when they were baptized. They were repenting of what they were. Well, it's the same idea that, that, that Jesus has with Nicodemus in chapter 3, where he says, effectively, you need a new lineage. You need to be born again. It's, it's not enough to be, to be a, a son of, of Abraham as you are, Nicodemus, right? It, it's, God is not interested, really, in your descendancy and genealogy for salvation. There's no salvation in that. Yeah, so anyway, so these are proselytes. These are Greeks who come up for the specific purpose of worshiping at the feast, which, which tells us that they knew the law and they were obedient to it, trying to, to obey it as best they could and, and coming to worship the Lord. Um, all right. So what's interesting is that they want to see him, right? So why go to Philip? And I, and I mentioned last time that Philip is a Greek name. Okay, so uh, um, Maybe, maybe just having heard his name or something, they, they said, well, he, maybe he speaks Greek and they can kind of identify with him there. And it also says, John includes this detail, he's from Bethsaida in Galilee. And Bethsaida in Galilee would be very close to the, the Gentile regions. There's two Bethsaidas. This one is in Galilee, and, and it was the one that was close to the Gentile area. And so Philip, given his... Um, his Greek name plus where he's from, pretty, pretty certain that they had some kind of, you know, some camaraderie with him. They felt comfortable with him, that he could speak their language and, and understand them. You know, not, not fill in too many blanks here, but that seems to be what, what's happening here. When they came to Philip and they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Okay, here's the Holy Spirit working again, right? He's drawing them to himself. And <clears throat> I'm thinking, you know, there's so much of the Holy Spirit. He, he's never, he's, well, never. He's, he is mentioned. We're going to actually see him quite a bit more in the upcoming chapters, uh, chapters 13 through 16, uh, where, the, where the Lord uh, promises that he's going to be, you know, it's actually better for me to go away and I'll send the promise of the Spirit to come and be with you. But the Holy Spirit's fingerprints are all over the gospel. As well as the Father, of course. And back in chapter 6, you remember that, that Jesus said, No one can come to me, what? Unless the Father draws him. draws him. Or it could be, trans I prefer the translation, compels him. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you, you don't come to God when you're ready. Okay. And, 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 and there's so much truth in that chapter. Just in passing again, I can't resist reminding you that you are a, if you are in Christ, you are a love gift of the Father to the Son. So that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't just see you, he sees the Father's love. It's amazing. Go back and read that chapter again, chapter 6 in John. All that the Father has given me. Right? And love gives. Love gives. All right. So um, here are some gifts. Evidently, from the Father to the Son. Right? Here are some people who are being drawn to Him, and the Spirit is at work in their lives, and they want to see Jesus. Um, <clears throat> Philip went and told Aunt White, said, well, why, Andrew? Um, don't know. These two have an interesting relationship. They, they showed up together at the beginning of chapter 6. We looked at that last time, right, where, where Jesus... They've got this big crowd that they need to feed. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, uh, uh, Philip, how are we going to do that? <laughs> right? And Philip puts on his, uh, 
a little almost picture a little visor or something you know in the calculator you know and runs the numbers and uh and it comes out i think it was 200 denarii right it's not enough to feed this crowd that's uh 200 business days of, of, of a salary right um that's a lot of money and then andrew finds this boy and i'm not sure if the boy went to andrew or whatever but the point I was trying to, 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 to give you is that, of course, the two of them are mentioned together there in the text, uh, and, and they both seem to be tested by Jesus, even though John says specifically that Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was just testing Philip. But Andrew's involved as well. And the thing that, that, that I find interesting, because Andrew's mentioned in the beginning gospel, we look at that as well. And in both cases where Andrew's mentioned before, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Okay? So Andrew, at the beginning of the gospel, is bringing is his brother who is Peter, right? Simon, and that later Peter. And then in the middle of the gospel in chapter six, um, he's bringing this young boy to Jesus with Mark. Um, interesting, I don't know why Philip had to go get Andrew or, or grab him. Maybe Andrew was available there and then the two of them went, but there it is. <clears throat> so verse 23, or verse 22, um, they went and they told Jesus. Now I have I have struggled with what's happening next. You know, did they leave the these poor Greek proselytes just standing there? Did that you know? I kind of it doesn't really say. I kind of think though um, that that they brought them with them, right? And they all went to see Jesus. And I I, I think that's Again, it's not really explicit, and, and it could be the other way. I could be wrong on that, and I'm fine with that. But uh, in verse 23, it says, and Jesus answered them. Now, who's the them, right? Is that is that just Andrew and Philip, or is that these Gentile converts as well? And I think it's all of them together, okay? And maybe some other, probably some other disciples, maybe even John was there and probably heard this too, okay? Um, but whoever the them is, I, I do believe that it includes those Greek converts because of what Jesus says next, okay? And so let's, that's really what we're hoping to get to. So let's get started on that. Uh, verse 23. Then Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay. The reason I think that the the that the, the Gentiles are here uh, with him is that he sees them coming. And it was really interesting because, again, John has made a, a, a very strong point of telling us, you know, all along that the Jewish um, leaders were more and more hostile to him, right? And then to, to the point where at the end of chapter 11, they have that uh, emergency session of the Sanhedrin right after the resurrection of Lazarus, right? And we've got to do something about this guy, right? And, and what's the conclusion? Nobody can raise the dead except God. He must be the Messiah, right? That's what they conclude, right? Come on, Blas. <laughs> That's a softball. No, <laughs> just seeing if you're paying attention, if I'm putting you to sleep. Um, what, what's their reaction? You got to get rid of them. You got to get rid of them, right? Remember what Caiaphas said, it's, been, it's more expedient for that man to die than for the whole nation. They were really concerned about their power. Yeah. And what Rome come, all right? So uh, anyway, so, but there are other people who are very excited. John's making that point. But here we are, as the, remember, very beginning of the gospel, John told us that he came to his own, and his own what? Not receiving. So he's he's proving that point. That's what he's doing. As, as the story is unfolding, he's showing us that point. But the verse right after that, he says, but as many as what? Did receive him, to them he gave 
the right to become children of God. And so you do have some Jews that it's not the whole entire nation, every single Jewish person, right? They're, they're divided over him. And, and, and so there are some people that are seeking him. Well, here, even as the nation itself as a whole is turning its back on their Messiah, here come some Gentiles, right? In whose hearts God is working. And, and Jesus sees that and he says here, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, well, what in the world is that? Is that the ascension? No, crucifixion. No, crucifixion. This goes all the way back to, to what? To the sign of the serpent in chapter 3. Remember where he's conversing with Nicodemus and he, he gives for the first time in biblical history an interpretation of that weird sign that God told Moses to do way back in Exodus, where the, you, you remember the story, right? And they got the plague of serpents that God brought um, because of the sin of the people, and, and they're dying from the bites, and, and, and Moses turns to the Lord and says, you know, people are dying, what do we do? And, and the Lord tells them to craft a brass serpent and put it on a pole. And, and, and nothing else is ever said about it in the Old Testament, except for, you know, some uh, reference to the people have been worshiping it. I think it was under Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah destroyed it. Remember that? And, and, but it doesn't, it, nowhere does it give us, an, why a serpent? Why not a lamb or a lion or some sacrificial animal? A serpent was an unclean animal. You didn't sacrifice a serpent. You sacrifice, under the law, you sacrifice, you know, oxen, and goats, rams, Doves, serpent, until chapter 3. He says, just like Moses had to lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He will draw all men to himself. Okay? And that's what's happening here. And I think that's that's why I think it's safe to say that the, the Gentiles, you know, you can see the Lord just looking at them as they come, and, and he's just like, yep, here's some of the first fruits, right? The Spirit of God is already working. The hearts of Gentiles and drawing many Gentiles to himself. How many of you are happy that God is opening the kingdom to Very Gentiles? good. Very definitely. <laughs> Maybe all of us? Yes, that's right. <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> all right, so, so he says the hour has come. <clears throat> Up to this point, the hour has not come, right? The hour has not come, the hour has not come, the hour has not come. The Gospels all make that point, but now the hour has come. Now the time has come. Passover, the one Passover, by the way, the first cleansing of the temple happened at the start of his ministry on a Passover, and the second, uh, the last cleansing happens at the last Passover of his, his ministry as well. But this, this particular Passover is the hour. This is the time when the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him, right in chapter 1, is going to be sacrificed. Interesting that uh, some of the references make it clear that he's on the schedule. He's not just haphazardly walking around. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's going to—that's an important point. Even as we get into the next chapters, because um, John is, <clears throat> Jesus is really um, very gentle with his disciples there, because because he knows that they are—they don't quite understand as pretty much every Jew didn't understand. They, they know he's the Messiah. They got that part right. But what's this What's this cross you're talking about? And that the leaders will turn me over and... It's not supposed to happen. In fact, we're going to see that in our text, right? They're going to... They're, the crowd is still confused. You know, who is this son of man you're talking about? We thought the Christ came and lived for... In other words, the Messiah came to stay. He's not going to be crucified. What are you talking about, right? Uh, the disciples are, and so he's very gentle with them uh, in the coming chapters to let them know God's plan has been this all along. And that's why uh, John is quoting more and more of the Old Testament as we go further into John. Uh, Matthew does it literally throughout the entire gospel, some of the, the others as well. But the reason they all quote from the Old Testament scriptures, this is important, is particularly for the Jewish Christians or, or, or Jewish um, people 
who were considering whether Christ was the Messiah or not. That would be the big hang-up for them. Well, wait a minute. You know, we've been taught all our lives that the Messiah, it says right there in God's word that he's supposed to come as the as the greater son of David, right? And, and the, the root and the offspring of David and sit on David's throne. And he's going to, he's going to, um, uh, subdue the nations with a rod of iron, right? And, and he's going to reverse the curse and the child is going to play with the cobra, right? All of those. <coughs> so what about all of that? You, none, Jesus didn't do any of that, right? <coughs> so the gospels, including John, have to come and say, look, here are the fulfillments of the scriptures. It's been God's plan all along. So you're absolutely right. Jesus is not this, he's not the victim of, uh, when we see his arrest in chapter 18, that's particularly important too. It's just a large force that comes to a mixed Roman and Jewish guard that come to arrest him, at least 200 men, at least, maybe more like three or four. I don't know. But it's a large company. It wasn't that Jesus was a victim. He wasn't overcome by the sheer volume of the army that's coming. He says simply, I am, and they all fall over. Right? He's, he's in charge. It's God's plan. It's on schedule. All right, so it is God's plan. Even though he dies at the Passover Lamb at the same time. That's right. That's right. The timing of it is, is God's plan. And it's also God's plan, thank God, that he is opening the gospel to, to the um, Gentiles. And that's what we see here. And I think that's what Jesus means. Now the hour has come. He's going to be lifted up, and he's going to draw all himself, okay, at the Father's Truly, truly, uh, verse 24, there's that phrase again, right? Jesus uses that effectively to say, amen, amen. In other words, <clears throat> truthfully, you know, listen up. This kind of the way we would say it. Listen up. I'm telling you it's the truth. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is the point of that statement. It is it is his death, yes. Some sometimes I've heard it interpreted but this is a man, a regular Joe, who needs to die to self in order to be more productive in his Christian life. I think it has a double meaning. I think primarily it's the death of Jesus, but it's been preached also about people, regular folks. But here, I think the real context is, is Jesus. <coughs> well, he illustrates it there too. After he talks about the grain of wheat dying, he talks about us dying to self. Right. To all passions and stuff. Yeah. Right. Then, in context. That's right. Yeah, the rest of the verses help us understand that. First, right? uh, the statement right before, the hour has come, the Son of Man be glorified. What's that? As Rick said, clearly, the cross, right? The cross, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension. Don't, don't miss that. All of those are part of his glorification process, okay? Um, but, as Eric, as you rightly said, the rest of it also says, what's the next verse? 25, whoever loves his life. Right? And then and then and then uh, verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Huh. So the application of that verse, that statement, or that you might say principle there, isn't limited just to Jesus. I think it's part of the cost of discipleship. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people run away. Yes, that's right. Um, as I've been studying this and, and thinking about it, um, you kind of you kind of you, you know how you kind of know something for a while, but then it's like years later the light comes on. It's like, oh, yeah, finally, um, like that commercial. I could have the eight. But this. This we have we use the cross. The cross has become the, and, and um, I think even back to the 300 A.D. or something like that. There was there's some some um, 
there are ruins of, of Christian meeting places, and they, of course they use the, the ichthus, right, the fish. That's a common one. Another one that's very, it's an ancient, ancient um, Christian symbol is an anchor, which is interesting, okay? But they have found a cross in several places as well, and that becomes, uh, you know, it, maybe not the very, very early, but several hundred years into the church history, it really starts to become the dominant. There's several, you know, like I said, several symbols, but that one really becomes, you might to put it in modern terms, the logo for Christianity, okay, is the cross. And, uh, you know, as a boy growing up in church and everything, you see crosses like this on the on a Christian flag, right? I mean, what's the logo we have on this flag, right? It's a cross. Um, you know, people's type in, or we have a cross out there and one here. And, you know, um, it, it just lets people know visually, oh, Christian, right? You see the cross in Christian. And as a, as a kid growing up, I'd see that symbology around, and, and you just sort of, okay, well, that's Jesus' cross. But what Jesus is, is getting to here, and we're going to see this now, watch this, because this is going to be unpacked for us in the next chapters as Jesus explains to the disciples what this really means, and to us as well, okay? What he's saying here in a, in a short summary form is this. The way of the cross is not just Jesus' mission to go and atone for the sin of people, but the, the cross symbolizes the whole will of God for anyone who follows him, okay? Now, it doesn't mean necessarily a physical cross that all Christians are expected to die on, okay? But it, it, it means the, the way of dying to yourself for the glory of God and the good of other people. And this is what Paul has in mind in Philippians when he says, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, right? And he was exalted in this place, but he humbled himself up to the cross. And, and I think, we're gonna, again, stay with me, because we're going to, as we get into the next chapters, this is really going to become an important principle. Let me just show that to you real quick. Um, uh, I just can't resist doing this, because this is, this is so good. Um, look at verse 26 for a second before we turn there. If anyone serves me, he must what? Follow me. Okay. Hold that thought. Let's go a page or so to the right. And here's his disciples in the upper room. He's 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 about to be betrayed. In fact, he's been um, betrayed. Judas has been dismissed. He's washed their feet. Judas has been dismissed. And he he tells them a very shocking statement in verse 33. This is chapter 13, verse 33. Little children. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I say, I also say to you, where I'm going, what? You cannot come. What's the next? Okay, so he, has, he talks about that new commandment. And then that's so super important. But that goes right in one ear and out the other, Peter. He pays no attention to those verses about the new commandment. He zeroes in on what Jesus says in verse 33, because look at verse 36 uh, there. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? See that? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. What? Now. For what? And then what does Peter say? Verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you also lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, there's that phrase again, I say to you, the rooster will not crow to you, deny me three times. And that's what Peter did, right? Mm -hmm. But after the resurrection, and we're going to all the way to the very end of this gospel in chapter 21, Jesus restores Peter three times for that every time that he denied him, he restored him. And he says, feed my lambs. And then he tacks on this. It's interesting. It seems to almost be detached unless you're really thinking about what John is, the arc of what the Holy Spirit, through John, is trying to tell us, is that, look, Peter, you couldn't come with me right then, right? I must face this cross alone. And yet I'm not alone. The Father's with me. The Father and I have business to do on the cross. Only we can do. 
but there is a cross coming for you later. And in Peter's case, he says, you're going to get old. You're going to stretch your arms out. They're going to lead you where you want to go. And John says that he said that indicating what kind of death Peter would die. Tradition tells us that he was crucified on a cross. I mean, subside down. His wife, I believe, was crucified before him. He was forced to watch her. Okay? But for Peter, it was an actual cross. He did get to follow the Lord, but just not then, you see. And I got to, as I've been thinking about this, I was like, you know, that's the same call that Jesus makes for every single Amen. person who follows him. And it's not, it's not an actual, you know, Roman cross or, you know, wooden cross somewhere, whatever that you, you expect it to be nailed to necessarily. But it's the same call as, as same self-sacrificial call. You could say that Jesus died many times before he was crucified. Right? And he, said, he effectively says that to them in this chapter. A new commandment I give you that you love one another, what? As I have loved you. <clears throat> commandment is not new. That's been there since Leviticus. What's new about it is the standard. I call you to the same kind of self-sacrificing love that I have exhibited. That's what I'm calling you to do. And that's what he means here. And back to our text, verse 24, a grain of wheat falls into the earth and what? Dies. Remains alone. But if it dies, it bears. You have to die. The way up is down. Paul said, I die daily. Yes. It's not a once and for all death. It's a turning away from, it's a, Paul also said in Romans 12, he talks about, uh, I, I view God's mercy, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. Wait a minute. A sacrifice is killed. It's dead. It's not living. A living sacrifice wants to do what? Keep getting off the altar. <laughs> right? So that's why we have hymns like, you know, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above, right? Um, this past week, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm sure you felt that many times. I, I know I do. And it's a struggle for us as believers to stay on that altar and to remember <laughs> John Calvin said I have to preach the gospel myself every day. And what he meant by that was it was not that, oh, yeah, right, Jesus died for my sin. That's not what he's talking about is that's right. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Honor God. With my time, my money, my my body, my heart, everything, right? To love the Lord right now, all heart, soul, mind, strength, and love others as you do yourself already. <laughs> sounds easy. It sounds easy, but it's not. It's it goes against the natural inclination and wiring of our of our hearts because we're very what? Self-focused, right? It's all about me. But that's the way of the cross, and that's why I titled this, our second point here, is Jesus discloses the way of the cross for himself and his servants. We'll have more to say about this next time. Um, in the meantime, let's uh, let's close in prayer. Yes, absolutely. Um, on Peter's defense, he did, he did deny the Lord, but I believe he was really ready to die with him at that time. Because he did draw a sword. Yes. Even with all those soldiers there, he just didn't understand the complete gospel. Yes. The story. Just, just to clarify that. I think that's why Jesus was encouraging him by saying, You can't come now, but you will come later. You will come later. You know, right there in 14, right after he says this, I mean, he tells him he's going to die. What's the, what's the next thing? Do not let your hearts be in trouble. That's right. He talks about the place that he is prepared. I'm preparing See, place. It's like, you know, and you, you talked about this so many times. It's like he told them and told them and told them and told them and told them. They just didn't get it. It was after he had been crucified. They saw him after he was crucified. 